Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Our podcast series examines from a range of perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Hello there and welcome to the podcast. Today we're looking at the issue of economic abuse. He can't physically get me, he can't emotionally hurt me, and yet financially he can cripple me. Taken from recent research by one of our guests today, this quote illustrates just a single dimension of an experience that one in five UK adults, men and women, reports has happened to them. Involving forms of financial control, exploitation, and sometimes even sabotage, individuals can find themselves affected both within current relationships and also after they've long separated from a partner. Significantly, although one in three people affected say they told no one about what is happening to them, many people do report telling a bank or financial services provider about their situation. In doing so, this creates a unique opportunity for a person to help protect themselves from further abuse, but only if they receive the right type of support. Campaigners say this should include banks freezing joint accounts, ensuring new addresses are not identifiable or shared with ex-partners, and making referrals to external domestic abuse charities. Until recently, research indicated such support wasn't consistently being given. However, is this about to change? With a voluntary code of practice on financial abuse published last year by UK Finance and a new charity, Surviving Economic Abuse, emerging to drive responses in this sector, could economic abuse be about to join issues such as mental health, cancer and gambling as a major priority for the sector? Or does it instead signal just more priorities for a financial services sector that some say is potentially struggling to implement the long list of the last expectations that think tanks, consumer groups and the regulator have given them on vulnerability? Joining us to discuss this and the experience, meaning and response to economic abuse are Annie, who's a volunteer with Surviving Economic Abuse, who speaks for the charity on her experience, and whose former husband controlled her life and finances, running up £58,000 debts in her name. Annie, hi. Hello. Nicola Sharp-Jeffs, the founder and director of the charity Surviving Economic Abuse. Nicola, hi. Hi, Chris. Uh, Karen Perrier, uh, client manager uh, at Money Advice Plus, a charity in East Sussex helping people experiencing difficulty managing their money or financial affairs. Hello. And Martin King, Head of Customer Vulnerability at Lloyd's. Hi Chris. Okay, Uh, let's start with the reality of economic abuse by hearing from Annie about her experience. I was with my ex-husband for 14 years. I finally decided to leave him after we'd met at lunchtime in the bank because we'd both had our own account and we had a joint bills account. It was very overdrawn and I'd taken a loan out in my sole name to clear it all off. What would happen though was to stop it going overdrawn again. They would take the money out of my account. Never his account, but always mine. On this one day, we met because they'd taken £10 and moved it to stop it going overdrawn from his account. We met in the bank and the chap behind the counter explained that he'd done it to save on bank charges. As we left, my ex-husband grew extremely irate and tried to punch me in the face in the middle of the town centre at lunchtime, surrounded by shoppers. He said to me, you can run I'm going to finish the job when I get home from work and um, and I ran because the violence at home had been so extreme that I actually believed that I would be dead that evening and I went back to work 
and I fled to a refuge. Annie, we, we just heard in the recorded piece about your experience and um, money clearly played a central part. Can you tell us more? Yes, it was really difficult because by the end of the relationship, I was in a situation where I had all this massive debt, struggling to pay it all back. Um, I'd gone out and actually, I worked full-time during the day, but I'd actually had to go out and get another evening job working till 1am every morning and every weekday. And also on Saturdays, work from home doing some business accounts. So my whole life was consumed by working as well as trying to look after three small children, yet still worrying if one of them needed a pair of shoes where I was going to find the money from. Um, and that also meant that I would never go to a debt advice agency either because I knew that they would advise me to reduce my payments and by reducing my payments I wouldn't be able to get any more credit and therefore if anyone needed anything I wouldn't be able to pay for it. Mm. Nicholas, situations like Annie's are referred to as economic abuse. What does the term mean and is it any different from domestic abuse or financial exploitation? Yeah, so we understand economic abuse to be part of the controlling and coercive behaviour that makes up domestic abuse. And as a charity, we refer to economic abuse because that recognises the broad range of tactics that abusers use. So we consider financial abuse to be a subcategory of economic, financial being control of money and finances, but economic recognising control, sabotage, exploitation um, of things like transportation, housing, um, but also down to the very basics. Um, control of food, clothing, the things that you need to be able to survive. So Annie, economic abuse has been referred to as an almost invisible form of domestic abuse. Um, to what extent though is this really true and are there signs that people can look for in their own situation or in someone else that they know which might signal such economic abuse taking place? I think it's definitely invisible because in my situation I didn't even recognise it until afterwards. For me it meant things like he would have designer branded clothing and yet I couldn't even afford to buy myself clothes and where I'd been working lots I'd lost an awful lot of weight and I couldn't buy smaller size clothes so I was putting belts around jeans that were two, three sizes too big for me and, and looked very sort of not scruffy but ill-fitting clothing and we we lived a different lifestyle me and the three children he he would have luxury weekends away um, and like say designer clothes and he would eat steak and, and we would eat beans value beans on a potato for dinner um, and we would never have anything that we could pay for to entertain us we would go to the park and have a picnic without him because he was always away doing things that cost lots and lots of money. So we've seen some of the research that Nicola has done that people are not often aware of the fact they're in such a situation as, as, as Annie. So Annie, are, are there signs that people should be looking for in their own situation or if we're concerned about others generally? What signs might we look for of this economic abuse? I would say that if you are, if there are differences in, in the way you live your life, in the way you eat, in the way that you dress, in the way that you spend your leisure time, are they, 
do they feel more deserving that they have have this money free to go off and do things while while you're wondering how you can pay the bills? Yeah, because it's often a, a normalisation. We get used to things and think this is just the way it is. Yeah, and this we, this we is on. just what married life is like, and you know, I'm 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 the mum, therefore I have to pay for all the childcare and the and and all the food and everything and everything for the household. To me, at the time, it it just seemed normal. Mm. And Nicola, surviving economic abuse has been set up to raise awareness of economic abuse, but also transform responses practically to mm. it. When it comes to the financial services sector, and I think we can include banks and also kind of debt advice as, as well, what opportunities for identification are being missed by organisations? Well, I think it's basically around an awareness that this issue actually exists, so making that invisible issue visible. Uh, because once you have an understanding of domestic abuse and the dynamics of it, then actually a lot of these things do suddenly become clear in plain sight, whereas previously they were hidden. So banks and other organisations like debt advice services can pick up on lots of things. Um, there might be examples perhaps where a customer is confused or doesn't know too much about their own finances, which would indicate that they might not be in control of their finances. Um, they might have a good job, for example, they might be working all hours like Ali described, but as she's also said, not able to go out and buy clothes for their um, children. So that might be another example. Um, they might not speak very much on the telephone, they might authorise a partner to speak on their behalf. Um, and they might also sound fearful and um, very anxious about speaking to a customer representative or an advisor. So taken with an understanding of what domestic abuse is, those signs might add up to indicate that this is um, an issue that they should be aware of. Okay, and we'll talk um, a little bit later on about some of the steps we might take to move from that identification to actually starting a conversation, which is probably the biggest practical barrier. Mm -hmm. But just taking kind of a, a, another step on um, the banks uh, and the debt advice um, organisations, are bank processes actually causing problems or detriment for people experiencing economic abuse? Because it's one thing to turn up and perhaps some of these indicators being there, but is, does the system itself create problems as well? It can do. It does so inadvertently. And I know lots of organisations are really looking at their systems and processes to close down opportunities to abuse. But particularly where there's joint financial products, uh, that means that it can be very difficult for the victim to uh, start their life again because they're always binded in some way um, with the perpetrator post-separation. Uh, so things like having a joint uh, bank account, um, not being able to close it down with both parties' consent, um, again inadvertent that the process around that would then continue to give control to the abuser and facilitates that actual abuse. Um, the joint and severable liability, um, unfortunately quite often the perpetrator is um, invisible again in the conversations about how to resolve issues around debt for example. So as Annie referred to there were situations where she went to the bank and there was an overdraft that had been run up and even though it was a joint account she was asked to take out a personal loan to cover that cost. So there are things sometimes where, again, the abuser just remains invisible in terms of responses and all the responsibility and focus sometimes is on the victim. So Annie, you heard that in your, in your, your case piece at the, at the start. So there was difficulties created by, by the system, as Nicola was saying. Yeah, for me, um, my ex-husband used to work out of town, so anything to do with banking was left to me to pop in in my lunchtime. And... Um, we had uh, this overdraft and I was asked to take the loan out in my sole name and it was a joint account overdraft. So um, in my view, looking through the two separate account 
was where we'd had it paid, um, we paid into a joint bills account. If they'd looked at my bank statement compared to his, it would have been mm. quite visible as to who was spending all the money on luxuries and who was trying to pay the bills and things were being bounced because there wasn't enough money in there. And yet I took the loan out, clearly unable to afford it, but you know, basing it, I would assume, on, on what was going in generally between us. Mm. So listening there to kind of Annie and Nicola, we had Martin King from Lloyds and Karen Perrier from Money Advice Plus. Martin, now the FCA introduced its vulnerability agenda almost five years ago. Um, however, some might say from hearing the situations outlined by Annie and Nicola, that despite this, economic abuse is an issue that has completely caught the financial services sector by surprise. Is that fair? I don't think that is fair. Um, to say it's a surprise, I think in the in the context of everything else that we've been working through, it doesn't it didn't start five years ago. It started many years before that. But I think in, in terms of the focus and vulnerability has had, um, we are, I think, colleagues, both frontline and indeed in the organisation more broadly, are more attuned to vulnerability and that people have lives. So then when we talk about the various things that are going on with them, whether that's their mental health, whether that's they're going through cancer diagnosis, they've lost a loved one. So people are becoming more aware just generally. And I think this is uh, an area where, certainly for us as a bank in the financial service industry, is, is a probably, probably one of the more complex. And the reason I say it's more complex is we have a relationship with both people. We have a relationship more often than not with both the perpetrator and victim survivor, which creates a real point of tension for us. So I don't think it's new, but it does just raise some very interesting and tough questions that we're now being we're now facing into yeah. and we are realizing that we have a part to play here and it's a very interesting situation compared to some other forms of vulnerability or vulnerable situation where actually a lot of it is kind of um, played out in the account data or the transaction data a bit like gambling issues and difficulties as opposed to something like um, cancer or maybe some forms of mental health problems so some of it is, is, is obvious and apparent I think there are clearly indicators um, and he's already referred to some of those in terms of the differences in accounts but also what we need to, what's tough is to disaggregate what is agreed behaviour between a, a couple and what is not agreed behaviour and what mm -hmm. is abuse and, and that's quite a leap of faith. Well, I think what we have certainly here in terms of the surprise is how we should react once it's come to the fore yeah. and actually have, what's our role to rectify and support that individual once they've once they need to get the help and we are able to provide that help. So there's um, some technical issues, some legal issues in there about states of accounts. There's also the fact um, that some relationships will have an unequal approach to finances, um, but we wouldn't call that exploitation, control, or, uh, or, or abuse. So it's, Karen, much of the recent focus around economic abuse has, has naturally fallen on kind of banks and building societies. It's often where we look first. But it, it's something that applies to the debt advice sector as well in terms of a responsibility to act. What would you say to that? I'd say absolutely. I think advice agencies are in a really unique position to be able to respond to economic abuse. Um, particularly the work we've been doing from in Money Advice Plus, we've had a project to help survivors of domestic abuse for a long time. Um, we've had it for nine years now, so we've been running that for a while, providing a full casework service for debts, for so just for survivors on their own. Just um, looking at the factors around risk and safeguarding that, that, that may flag up when we give our advice. Um, I think Annie pointed out that you were afraid to come for advice because you yeah. felt that um, debt advice might say that you need to prioritise your payments. And I think there is a, 
a clear under, needs to be a clear understanding for money advisors about what may be a priority for this particular group as well, and not reinforcing maybe what the perpetrator is doing, so having a greater understanding of economic abuse. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So telling people to prioritise certain payments is, is, is a standard play from the debt advisor kind of a book, isn't it? Absolutely. What would, what's the issue when it comes to economic abuse about giving that advice? I think because you were frightened that you couldn't access any more credit. Yeah, once, once I think then in my mind I would have been blacklisted, so if I couldn't buy the kids' clothes from a catalogue, then that would be to their detriment. But also, because of his controlling nature, if he wanted me to buy him something, in my mind, if I even if I couldn't afford it, I'd be weighing up the other cost to me. So do I go and buy him this expensive item on my credit card that I can't afford, or do I risk the kids seeing him attack me again or him smashing up something that would cost me even more. Mm. So in, in my mind, I would just go and buy him the item he wanted because that was the most cost-effective way of dealing with it. But I had to have that availability with the credit to be able to go and buy it. So going to a money advice person, is they're going to tell me, no, don't pay for this catalogue, don't pay for that credit card because you need to be paying for this in my mind I know that I can't do that because I have to buy him the things that he needs so it's really interesting because there's uh, that heightened awareness then immediately makes us think there's another path there's another th- way to deal with this and Absolutely. what is the way to be dealing with that then I think it's um, it's it's training money advisors to understand economic abuse and what those factors are those risk factors because like you're saying you were putting yourself at risk by not making that payment to that catalogue and not being able to use it yeah. mm-hmm. so it's understanding what that risk factor is and so how what, to deal what, with that what safety what would you do though in that situation well that payment for Annie was a priority payment yeah so we should treat that as a priority payment. So when we put together a financial statement, that those those things that become a priority for that person should be taken into consideration. And I think just to add to that, that training needs to really um, reinforce the fact that you know that economic safety is absolutely underpinning physical safety. We can't separate those two things. So as a society, we generally think about domestic abuse being physical safety. But if we understand this economic abuse is actually running through everything that um, Ali said in terms of actually trying to you know, keep her and her children safe, um, things that might not seem so obvious from you know, the outside looking in um, are very significant in terms of that being able to survive. So I think a thing, simple thing would be as a money advisor, when you said you had a joint account, we'd probably say go and open your own account. Obviously that could put you at risk if that letter was sent to your address. You know. Sorry, it may be that you know it needs to be sent somewhere else, a correspondence address, so you can do that safely. But I think it's that factor that you've got to to advise someone to do something, but make sure you do it safely. Now, uh, a new voluntary code of practice, uh, the Financial Abuse Code of Practice, has been signed up to by around 20 banks and building societies, uh, following work by kind of UK Finance and others, uh, which is aiming to respond in, in part to economic abuse. So, Martin, can you tell us a bit more about the code of practice, which I believe Lloyd's have signed up to? Happy to. Um, so the code of practice was in response to how, how did we as an industry respond to um, some of the work that Nicola's done to, to bring this to the fore and, and actually say, are there things that we should be doing as standards for consumers? So I'm a consumer of many banks. Do I get the same response from each of those financial institutions? Almost trying to avoid what we just almost played out with the, the catalogue scenario. So the, the six key areas. First was about raising awareness and encouraging disclosure. So it is, we talk a lot about vulnerability and have on previous podcasts about it's better to know than to guess, it's better to be told 
than to worry about offending somebody. So that I think it's a, it's a big part to play there. The next part we've already touched on is also about training, training of colleagues, but understanding the sensitivities of the subject and the, what, what people also may be going through in their own personal lives at the same time. Um, identification and an appropriate response. And the interesting bit there is also it's not a response, it's an appropriate response. It's quite a key word and, and quite a key factor. Minimising the need to repeat someone's story. This is not something that should be trolled out every time you walk through the doors of the bank. And it's, it's difficult to avoid and it's something we all need to be striving to do across, not again, not just um, this particular subject, but across the breadth of vulnerability. Um, helping to regain control of finances. This is quite a key area that we see as our, our role. Again, if we can help people control their finances through other scenarios, they've lost their job, they're going through, this should be no different. And then finally, we've also got to recognise as an industry what our role isn't. So therefore, signposting and referrals are a key part here. We are not here to solve the many things that need to be addressed through um, uh, someone's abuse. Um, we, we need to understand where we stop mm -hmm. and where we need to signpost and refer. Now, one of the common problems, and it's in, it's in the uh, code of practice, and it's recognised in there, we touched on a little bit, it's around joint accounts, uh, where a partner runs up bills on a joint account and leaves the other partner perhaps liable for these, or where um, an abuser adds a partner as a secondary account holder without their knowledge, but where bank procedures mean that the partner can't then remove themselves from the account without the abuser's permission. This can't be right, surely, Martin. Uh, what does the code of practice say here? I think there's two bits I would pull out from this. I think there's two differences. One is around um, adding people to accounts when they're unaware. That is fraud. So we need to be really, really clear on that, that, that. How we deal with that and how we address that, uh, that is not, um, uh, that's not a, a, a grey area. That is clearly somebody is either signing and, and taking fraud. And that doesn't matter whether you're in a relationship or it is another person that you see it on the street and you suddenly add them to your account. You can't do that. I think the more difficult part is where you have um, the coercion and um, obviously as Annie's played out, the, the, the need to do certain things, but do, is that right and are they then, should they be held liable? And I think this is where um, we have got to kind of face into this as an industry. It's not a clear cut because we have a contract with both. And I think we are now starting to try and unpick how do you unpick joint finances where you have a contract with perpetrator and victim survivor. Um, and the code of practice is encouraging us to do that, but I think we are, we can't do it alone. Mm. Again, as an industry, we only need to support with <clears throat> the, the whole, um, set, the, the various sectors that are at play here, because uh, if we look at um, the prevention orders that come from the courts, they'll talk a lot about assets, but they won't talk about the treatment of debts. Again, we will need, we'll be very, very helpful to get legal guidance on that kind of thing. So I think there's more work to be happening. Um, but uh, it, it is incredibly complex. You, you, you're hearing there about the complexity of joint accounts and unpicking them. What, what, should, what should be happening? I think that um, there is obviously procedures in place already. I mean, the, the code of practice goes a bit further, saying to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis, which is brilliant. Um, there has been some standard responses, but there are things people can do. So you could close account if it was in a zero balance or take your name off it if that's what you wanted, if the balance is zero. You can freeze an account by giving one person with one mandate but obviously when you do that it would freeze for both parties it's not just for one person 
And I think underpinning all of that is you've got to consider that, that the survivor has to see if it's safe for them to do those things. So that's always in the back of my mind. Is that safe for that to happen? Because obviously if you either close or take, remove your name or freeze an account, the perpetrator's going to know. So we've got to be aware, is that, if, can that happen? And I think also, I mean, I did deliver some training yesterday and I was very surprised, it was money advisors, of how little they knew when those things could happen and what those procedures are. So it's just raising that awareness as well. So you can get inadvertent intervention with the best will in the world that actually can cause physical um, harm uh, or economic harm to the person. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's very, one phrase that struck me in the, um, the code of practice was zero balance. Um, I just wondered about the practicalities uh, and the reality of the situation, how often there is a zero balance in, in a joint account and what does this mean, mean in terms of kind of moving, moving forward? The practicalities are there is probably not a zero balance, there's probably a positive or a negative balance. So obviously that's one that doesn't happen that often, but it may be something you want to remove your name from an old account that's just been sitting there, because that, yeah, that could be just as important as an account that's actually active and being used, because you want to disassociate yourself from, from the perpetrator. So I think it, it is important, but in practice it probably isn't that balance to go forward. So if, I, so if there isn't a zero balance and I, I come to you and uh, disclose kind of economic abuse mm -hmm. is, is happening, I probably won't use those terms, I'll just describe what's happening in my life. Mm -hmm. What would your advice as a money advisor be? My advice would be is to contact that bank, the bank and let them know on that date that you're no longer using the account and no longer have access to that account right. and either hand your card in so you're not going to use it anymore. It's just a date on which you've notified the bank of what is going on and why you're not using that account. And then later on, if there's an issue with the account, you can come back to it. And if I feel that would endanger my safety, I just... And this, this is unpicking, it's yeah. not easy, it's not an easy issue. What, what, what would I do? I'm, I'm kind of making the assumption that someone may have left at that stage. Right, yeah. So, you know, that would be the date that we would go forward and let the bank know. Um, if that's not happening and you don't feel safe and you're still still with the perpetrator, then obviously there's a whole different discussion and it's going to be really difficult to have. Yeah, and who will be having that discussion? The advisor, the bank? It's... It depends who you've approached, I guess. Um, it should be both parties should be pre pre prepared to deal with that, okay. you know. And we'll come on to some of that preparation and raising some of the skills uh, taking place. So uh, I understand, Karen, in the um, in the code of practice, there's um, uh, an option or a recommendation that you should be informing the individual other products that might have been taken out within that organisation in their name or involve them. Is that, is that in the code of practice? It absolutely is, and it's a really important part for money advisors because obviously if someone's come into us and suffer from economic abuse, there's a high chance there may be accounts that they are unaware of. So obviously, as with the code of practice, it says there's minimal times of having to repeat your story. If someone's going to go and check to see if there are any other financial products in that name, it's really important for someone to be able to move forward. I think it raises an interesting point around um, a challenge for us as firms, particularly when we have multiple brands, multiple systems. Um, we are doing it. We are doing it on other things. And again, have that thought, have that position in your mind um, as, a, as a customer comes in and says, I need to know everything. It is no different to when somebody wants to go and register a death. We should, at that stage, be finding everything. This is no different. We shouldn't be going, oh, that's only current, current accounts oh, that's only loans, oh, that's only this. It should be of everything. So it's interesting around the disclosure aspect, because um, that's in the code of practice as, as well. It's um, about to minimise the need for multiple disclosures, as kind of Martin was alluding to. 
that's really important and we want to minimise as much as we can a victim survivor having to keep reiterating what happened to them. It can be traumatic obviously for them to have to keep going through that but similarly the people who are listening it can be very difficult and there's nothing more frustrating, Karen will probably testify that calls that she um, takes with victim survivors sometimes can be two hours or so long mm. um, and to actually keep having a two hour conversation with someone from scratch every time you call a bank um, to talk about a continual issue um, you know, can be very frustrating and could lead to victim survivors deciding that it's not really worth doing and they might decide that they, you know, they would rather not have to keep going through everything. Um, they're already in a difficult situation so we just need to try and keep everything as simple and as straightforward as we can for them. And also for them to recognise that there's a level of understanding that's been brought to their case. Annie, might this have changed your experience of economic abuse in relation to this multiple disclosure kind of over time? I think so because um, for me it was not just the it wasn't just the bank with my bank account it was also the mortgage company because after I'd left him and I had the court order to say about the property being transferred into my name the amount of different mortgage advisors that I had to see within my bank and to the point where I had to actually give them copies of my medical records to prove what had happened to me um, it took me, they made me pay my mortgage payments for a year at, at a higher interest rate, even though the court said it, the house had been transferred into my name. Um, and even then when they were going to put it in my name because they said I didn't earn enough money on my own to pay for it, um, they wanted all my medical records and everything to prove it and all my court documents. So that was that was quite sort of having to hand all that over. Was so you had to go to what, GP or...? Well, I'd, I'd had them to obtain an, an injunction afterwards anyway, but then they want, when I said I had an injunction, they wanted me to bring it all in to prove it. So okay. it was quite a big file, but it was everything that had ever happened to me. Okay. I think um, I'd like to sort of bring up something we're trying to develop here. We've um, developed an economic abuse evidence form um, that's very similar to the debt and mental health evidence form and um, we would like that to use that in that way so you wouldn't have to disclose all those documents because it's not fair for you to have to disclose them but equally it's not fair for someone else to have to receive them mm -hmm. yeah. because that the person receiving them is not trained to to either go through them and you know domestic abuse can invoke some really emotional responses and if you haven't got that support network in your workplace then how, how do you deal with that information that you're being sent? So we've we've developed that form to try and minimise that that use of you know that documentation that someone might be required to. That sounds like a very useful um, tool. So is, is that available now or is that in the pipeline? It's not available now. We've just put it out to consultation. Right. Okay. Um, I think it goes out in consultation next week. So then we'll get some feedback and we're going to have a working group around that form and try and move it forward. What's really important, we think, is a consistency in responses. So you talked about the UK Finance Code of Practice creating some kind of consistency in terms of how banks respond but similarly in relation to how creditors would respond as well because we do a lot of work to support individual survivors and sometimes one creditor will say okay we recognise the situation that you're in um, you know we write, write off this debt on this occasion we might remove a default from your credit rating but the survivor might then present the same evidence have exactly the same conversation with another creditor who won't actually do that mm. um, so that can be very difficult for them under to understand because the other creditor will say things like well I can't do that but then they think well actually somebody else just has done so it makes it very difficult and again a real sense of sort of unfairness in terms of the situation that they're in mm. because of course and this is an attitude that some advisors might come up against or bank staff 
some women, you know, do become really angry in terms of what's happened to them and when they understand it and, you know, think, well, why should I be paying back someone else's debt? Um, so it feels very unfair already. And then for systems to create what they perceive to be even more unfairness can be really difficult to cope with. And who will complete the evidence for? We want to it to go out to money advisors, but we would like them to be trained in economic abuse. It needs to be an accredited training and someone that's filling that out has a good understanding of what economic abuse is, so it's used in the right way. So it's different then from the debt and mental health evidence form in the sense that that's available for kind of all advisors to use without training? Absolutely, but a debt and mental health evidence form is signed off by your GP or a consultant, so obviously we want some authority behind the form, mm -hmm. so that would be someone that's highly trained in economic abuse and has a good understanding, so the form is used in the right way, for, and, it's, and, and it is one option. As a debt advisor, it will be an option that you could use. It may not be the right option, even if someone suffered from economic abuse, so we need to make sure that you know, we're still delivering the money mm -hmm. advice that we should do. And this is really important, it's that, it's that movement from uh, identification to conversation, which is, which is often such a tricky subject. We sense that something's been mentioned or there's something going on and we want to raise that with, with the individual, be it a money advisor or a creditor. How should firms be starting conversations with uh, people like uh, in Annie's um, situation when they think there is something going on? How do we, how do we begin those conversations? I think it can be really difficult. I think if you, I, I would as a money advisor ask some just sort of really gentle probing questions. And my experience is if you kind of push in that direction just slightly, you will get that response and I'm sure someone's quite happy to disclose. Normally if someone's been really supportive, the feedback that we get is generally really great. If you've kind of gone in that direction and been supportive to, towards someone and asked those questions and just saying, you know, maybe saying, do you have access to that money? Can you afford that? Someone will probably respond really positive to that because they know they're going to get that support. It's always dangerous when you've got an expert by experience sat next to you. So, Annie, what would what, what have I think for me, on all the occasions that I went into the bank, if perhaps he sort of said to me, oh, is this going on? Because if it is, we can help you by doing this. So even if I hadn't been willing at that time to disclose, then I would have gone home and thought about it and perhaps later on. And I, I, looking back now, I feel like I'd have been more likely to disclose to someone I didn't know than to any of my friends or family. Yeah. And uh, starting conversations about it with you, though, I mean, how, you know, somebody who's been through this, you know, are you sometimes sitting there thinking, I wish somebody would just ask me about this? Oh, I'd... definitely, definitely. There were occasions where I'd even hinted to people and, and no one had picked up on it. But so I how... think if they'd asked me outright, even, I would have said yes. So, Help Ma me. <laughs> so Martin, listening to this, we, we have, uh, Lloyd's have done an immense amount of work about mental health. We've discussed that in the past. I remember coming from the mental health sector when it was a taboo to talk about mental health. And uh, thank God things have, 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 have changed now. Um, how long before the industry gets in the stride to be talking about economic abuse with the same level of confidence? Are you, are you nearer to it now than starting from scratch? You know, it's well, Undoubtedly nearer. Undoubtedly nearer, but I think um, this isn't... A you, you talk about mental health and the, the, the journey society's been on. I think we're on a similar journey. I think we started, and I'll always go back to something else, alcoholism, drug addiction. We've kind of gone through those, and it's fine to say to somebody, you, you don't worry about drinking, it's okay. Mm. We now, if, again, from a bank's point of view, we seem to be able to, we should be able to respond. We should be able to start picking up on those clues mm. and being open to take the conversation. I think historically, um, as a 
organisations, a company, did with somebody, we, we want to maybe close those down. Mm. Not saying we did, but we want to move on where we're comfortable and happy in our procedures and we'll go back to procedure. I think now we're in a space that we should be comfortable and our people on our front line and, and how we deal with it should be ready to open up. But I think more importantly, they should be ready to open up and have the tools in which mm. to address it because I yeah. think it's dangerous um, to open up and then not have anything to actually address and work through. So, and I think that's where the code of practice is very helpful because it helps advise us what tools we should have, how far we should go as an industry, yeah. and where we should also turn around and say, actually, this is this next step beyond is, is how we do it. Mm. Um, and I, I think from, from what Annie said about her circumstances, there are times clearly where we should be ready to have that conversation, as if we as an industry, um, but we maybe wouldn't have had the tools. Yeah. And we, we need to be recognising the things that are um, inadvertently making the situation work. So that's the other mm. part here is there's a there's a role to solve and regain control of finances. I think we also need to recognise there are times when we should stop inadvertently making it worse. Yeah. Is there, we'll get onto that in a second, is there a, a gender dimension to it as well in response to starting these conversations that perhaps doesn't exist for mental health or physical illness? that might stop some colleagues uh, in, in banks and creditors beginning these conversations? And what, what advice would we give to creditors in relation to this? Well, I think everyone needs to start from the point that anyone can experience domestic abuse, absolutely. Uh, so we would ask men in the same way that we would ask women. Again, it goes back to the training point, really to understand how this issue might affect men and women differently, but similarly how it affects people who... Um, have other characteristics so for example your sexuality whether you've got a disability um, your ethnicity all these things will come together and play out in a particular way which means that a lot of victim survivors will experience this um, you know in a way that is unique to them and that's the point about domestic abuse really and a really important thing to understand is that you know abusers will absolutely focus on the vulnerability mm. of the victim and they will use absolutely everything they can so for example if it was in relation to um, ethnicity and background, you know, a lack of understanding of English, a lack of understanding of how the banking system works, um, economic dependency because of immigration status, there's lots of different ways in which these different characteristics can be used to perpetrate this abuse. So as a woman, um, again, Annie, I think, was, has very powerfully explained how, you know, she felt that this was normal, that she was mum and she stayed at home and therefore she should look after the children and pay all the childcare costs. And that wasn't something that she questioned. And again, as Martin said, as a society, we don't actually question that. We wouldn't necessarily see that as a red flag in terms of domestic abuse. But if you came into Annie's household and you saw that you know there was a different shelf in the fridge for you know her husband's food, you know which was steak, and her um, food and the children's food that was very different, we'd start to see that the people were living a different kind of standard of life within a household, and that actually money is being used as power. So it's really important that we kind of understand that this actually happens and we look out for the clues, um, both in terms of visual clues if you're in somebody's home. And I know some debt advice does take place in people's homes and that's a really unique opportunity again to pick up on these things, but also through conversations as well. And I think money advisors are in a really unique position maybe to have some really good clues. So for example, if you put a budget together for someone, and someone's saying, I don't have any money left over, but you can see a, a big surplus. Mm. Or equally, if you could see a minus budget as well. You know, they're really big clues that something else is going on in the household and there's not, not something, something's not quite right. Yeah, yeah. And, it's good. and um, for, those, for those listening, um, the, the Money Matters um, report that you wrote with um, Cooperative uh, Bank and Refuge, uh, I was struck by kind of um, those who reported economic abuse. I think uh, 
one in seven were kind of men and one in five were women and then there were other kind of strata within that it's a really nice um, description of kind of a, what's happening and quite a unique one as well um, and maybe we can get you to talk about it towards the end can we just talk about um, some of the system kind of issues so in most extreme we hear about detriment being caused by um, letters that are wrongly addressed as in they disclose someone's new address and the former partner is on there so that's kind of the negative kind of issues but we also hear about kind of um safe um sort codes i've never heard of safe sort codes before um nicola do you want to tell us a bit about the, the that positive aspect and kind of scheme that's taking place at the moment absolutely well we believe that that scheme's being run by hsbc as part of its work around implementing the uk code of practice around financial abuse and to have a sort code which doesn't identify your location is actually hugely important for a lot of victims so i never thought about this that my sort code says as much about me I was always telling people I live in Belgravia, um, <laughs> living in high life. It's kind of, no, but they know that they know I'm living from Stone. <laughs> and this is the point, really, post separation, because again, a lot of people, and mm. as you say, we would generally want someone to leave and exit the situation, and we think that can be the safest thing for them. But in the context of domestic abuse, again, it goes back to what Karen's saying. We have to make sure that we can do that safely, because actually, separation is about challenging the perpetrator's control and the ultimate challenge of that control obviously is to leave the abuser. So what we find is that the vast majority of homicides and very sadly two women a week are killed by a current or a former partner in the UK actually happen at that point of separation or soon after when the abuser recognises that they're not going to go back. So this issue around location is hugely important because a lot of the time the abuser will be trying to track the victim down and cash withdrawals would be another example here of where location could be given away. But um, a sort code, if the um, abuser is still having access potentially to online banking, um, potentially mail might still be coming through the post because the systems haven't quite caught up or the victim hasn't had the opportunity yet to tell the bank that they don't want mail being sent to their house. These are all ways in which the abuser could potentially track down and in some very awful circumstances uh, murder their partner. So Martin, are we hearing things within uh, the credit sector, within Lloyd's, uh, maybe not specifically about um, um, safe sort codes, because that's a recent issue, the, the, the changes that you can make in terms of advocates acting on behalf of a, um, somebody or alternative address for a refuge or a, kind of a, a safe house, are they things that are taking place at the moment? Um, they are, and I think, again, I don't think um, this is where Certainly having advocates act on your behalf is, is no different to a number of other vulnerabilities. And our ability is, again, as an industry to deal with somebody else that can help support somebody going through a, a period of turmoil, and that may be financial abuse, it may be cancer, it may be mental health. That we're in, That's a, a major need for us to, again, get better. I think we also need to recognise uh, that by the nature of it being money, and by the nature of it dealing with people's finances, we always need to have controls. Because unfortunately, there are always those that will look to, uh, I'm to use the word, uh, abuse the system mm -hmm. almost in the other route. Yeah. So, so I think we, we recognise it's, it's a very difficult um, balance between empowering people to do that and also protecting them from bad things. And it's, it, it isn't an easy judgment. And I think that doesn't just apply in this scenario, it does apply in a number of others. Uh, but, but I think, going back to your original point, um, there are a number of things that we can do. I think we also need to consider, and this is where, against the backdrop of all the other work on vulnerability, is where does the enhancements and improvements that we can and should be making here sit alongside everything else? And actually, if we're making one change 
let's go make that change. But other things we can do whilst making that change, whilst we've got the bonnet up, as you go tinkering in the engine, actually should we be doing other things and changing things? So if we are making fundamental changes to joint accounts, dress systems, do you know what? Let's get the designers, let's get the people that own these products to think about this as a scenario that they should be considering for this change yeah, yeah. before we miss the cycle and go back around again. And I think that's just incumbent on, on again, across the breadth, not just uh, in this scenario. But it, it is now on the pad yeah. as, an, as an issue, as a subject with the code of practice to say, this is something we need to think about when we are lifting that lid and going and tinkering around with the engines. So it provides an opportunity not just to think about economic abuse, but an opportunity to think about other types of vulnerable situation that could equally benefit from um, say postcodes or changes to admin procedures. Uh, undoubtedly, if we think about some of the things uh, that we've already done, such as the banking protocol. So, so if we think about supporting uh, individuals walking into our branches wanting to withdraw large sums of cash or transfer it to people that are coerced, and this coercion could have gone on for months, many, many, maybe even a year or so, and our colleagues are doing a great job at spotting that, and they're able to contact the police, bring the police in. So we started having those are difficult conversations to have when mm -hmm. somebody's saying, no, I'm trusted where this money is going, I, I'm absolutely kind, it is my money, I will do what I need to do, mm -hmm. regardless of the levels of coercion they're under. Um, and we've seen a, a massive response in terms of colleagues feeling they have a tool, colleagues feeling that they have the authority with which to have that conversation, and actually they are doing something right to protect the consumer and stopping that money leaving. Let, let's, let's think about some of the um, the broader support initiatives that for the, the whole sector. Um, and, and Nicola, um, Surviving Economic Abuse have launched a, a national helpline, but, but it's not for survivors of economic abuse, but for banks and building societies. Why is this? What, what are you aiming to achieve here? Well, the reason that we've launched that service is because that's what victims and survivors have told us that they need. So they've talked to, to us about having difficult conversations with banks and building societies and uh, their feeling that banks and building societies are not supporting them in the way that they would like them to. So we see the best way of responding to that is to actually have conversations with banks and building societies so that we can work with them in just the way that Martin's been describing in terms of kind of opening that bonnet and tinkering around and seeing what it is that we can do. But another important element of doing this work is that we're going to be working with individual banks and building societies because they'll all work differently and, and they'll all respond to this issue differently or at least make changes in different ways. And what we want to be able to do is facilitate um, you know, a really clear and um, straightforward pathway for individual customers of individual banks and building societies to know exactly who it is that they need to talk to you know and how those conversations um, can be initiated by them as well as by the bank that we've been you know in the way that we've been discussing today so I, I ring up and maybe you can remember the phone number off by heart it's kind of I ring up um, and you know I'm from a building site or a bank what can I get what will happen is this to discuss individual cases or you know, what will happen well it can be um, as individual as an individual case or it can be as broad as to we want to train our staff in relation to this issue so we're not looking to offer um, a blanket um, response we want to have conversations with banks and building societies to understand what their needs are so I could ring up with someone on the phone or in branch with me who's disclosed this and we're trying to work out what's the best to do mm -hmm. and I could speak to you who would I speak to would it be well, you Nicola will you well, be answering the phone it's not going to be me it right. might be if Christina's on holiday um, but Christina Govia who's our banking and insurance advocate who's here today um, is operating that helpline 
What we don't want to do is to have lots of frontline staff inundating Christina with lots of calls. Um, so part of those conversations with banks and building societies is to find a mechanism through which um, particular questions, for example, about a case would be related to Christina. Mm. Um, but we would absolutely seek to support on um, advising in relation to individual cases and we do do that for banks and building societies where there's been a particular issue we have a contact point um, of someone who will call us up and have a discussion with us about that but again the other really important thing about this service is that we're going to be able to notice what kind of themes um, emerge from those conversations so where are people struggling and the other thing that we're going to do in this um, service is being funded very kindly by the Home Office. They've also given us some resource um, for a research and information officer who will be able to um, pull together resource sheets that we again we can share with customers but also with banks so that we get to the point where that information is freely available and then that will obviously ease the pressure on the helpline going forward and make sure that this piece of work is sustainable. And as a, um, a bank that's been looking at this particular subject and really scratching their heads, I think we've had a number of conversations with uh, Nicola and her team for a, um, a number of particular individuals and particular cases, and they're, 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 they are definitely um, head scratchers. So, so what I wouldn't say is, this, um, in the nicest sense, we've not phoned up and got an immediate answer. It is, let's understand it, let's go through it, because every case is individual and complex. And uh, the phone number. Now, Christina, you weren't going to speak on mic, but you're here and there is a mic. So, Christina, uh, what's the what's the helpline number? Yeah, so my name's Christina and I'm banking insurance advocate, as Nicola has said. And the phone number for the National Advice Service is 07 554 Thank you. And that will be on the uh, podcast page as well. Karen, um, so what work is planned for the debt advice sector? We've identified it's a crucial element. Um, and it sits alongside creditors. What, what have you got planned? Okay, so we've obviously had some funding alongside Nicola from both the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport and also the Home Office. And so we have a, obviously, casework service for debt advice already. Um, obviously, it is heavily subscribed and underfunded. So we have limited resources in which we can help individuals, but part of that is to deliver training to the money advice sector, so we'd like to continue with that obviously. Um, and it is just getting the debt advice sector to understand economic abuse as a vulnerability all of its own. I think we have a good understanding of domestic abuse, but we need that further understanding of economic abuse and what the consequences of that are so we can respond better to it as individuals. Um, part of what we're doing as um, the funding that we have is to run a pilot project and we have a debt advisor sitting in Solace Women's Aid mm -hmm. so they can, someone can access um, advice directly at the point of access to see how that works and moves further forward. So what we're trying to do really is replicate, we, we provide a national telephone service so it's very helpful because obviously if people flee across the country they can access that service all the time but we'd like to replicate that in local areas so they take the knowledge that we've developed over the last nine years and replicate that so it wouldn't just be us being able to provide that advice yeah it's, um, um, martin one of the things we've touched on uh, in other discussions that we've, we've had um, maybe in addition to some of the other things lloyd's have got planned around economic abuses um, sometimes staff are talking with a customer about experiences happening in their lives at the same time I wonder what you think um, should be happening within Lloyd's or within the credit sector more generally and the whole kind of staff experience in this particular vulnerable situation. So I'll, I'll broaden it out more broadly because um, what we also need to recognise is we have all of our colleagues are likely to be customers and therefore customers will be colleagues in some organisations somewhere in the, in the, the UK. Um, so I think as UK PLC actually how we talk about 
this subject, how we equip people, how we make sure we've got support services around them when uh, they themselves may need to flee, they themselves are maybe going through um, scenarios of abuse, but also then training people to how, how to deal with that. So I think don't think that's just us in the banking sector and credit sector, that is a, a kind of a, a need for all of us to kind of lift the lid and, and really go into it. Particularly with um, the creditor sector and the banking sector, I think we do need to equip our colleagues and we need to understand that these are essentially very tough discussions to have, um, not just face-to-face, -face, but even on the telephone, because you may be hearing distress, the time of day these calls may be coming in, the other things that are happening in the background. Yeah. Having listened to some of these calls, you can hear um, some pretty horrible things actually that are happening, and we need to make sure our colleagues are prepared to be able to take those calls and deal with them. That's, actually, really, that's really interesting, because in situations involving um, uh, people talking about taking their own lives, I think staff are now fully aware and equipped to call the emergency services. However, I imagine there will sometimes be kind of a moment of hesitation about well, actually, am I misinterpreting what's going on and not having that certainty? How do we tackle that? I think it's, it, I think it's similar. So, so I don't think it's any different, but actually, again, giving them the authority that to make that decision, we are, and, and the, the tools, not just in a physical, I got this thing I could do for a customer, but the tool mentally mm. to recognize, actually, this is a scenario where I should be doing something different. This is a scenario I should be picking up the phone to the police or a another so again that's that signpost and referral to say we need a bit of extra support. And just to interject there, this is a really tricky area in terms of you know when we're talking about calling the police because the person who will know best about how to keep um, the victim survivor safe is the victim survivor themselves. Mm. And sometimes again, inadvertently, we can think we're doing the right thing, but actually what we can do is raise the risk that that victim and survivor is facing. And it's particularly important in relation to domestic abuse because that's about one partner controlling the other. And what we have to try and do is make sure that we're not controlling and telling a victim survivor what to do, that we give them that control back. So as Martin said, there's no easy answers for a lot of this and it is a new um, and developing area. And we need to have some really um, difficult and challenging conversations about how we do recognise those things, um, but at the same time make sure that people are safe. So there's a number of common things that you would do for any vulnerable situation and that includes economic abuse but then there are considerations that need to be taken into account mm -hmm. to ensure that we're not doing the wrong thing mm -hmm. by following the right practice for other situations but this is really really interesting because um, surviving economic abuse so they're growing a, joining a growing number of charities who are now looking to financial services to take action on specific issues or situations and not all of these financial organizations have large amounts of resources or staff or kind of capability and sometimes have to choose one priority challenge or change or another or at least it seems that way so it's not uncommon then for some people in financial services to wonder why the individual charities don't work with one another on the common issues you know regarding identification disclosure product design rather than request that their particular voice is heard above others so what would you say to that request for coalition rather than competition I think it's a really good idea, actually. I think maybe because this agenda has developed incrementally and we've looked at specific issues one after the other, we've not thought about how we come together as a collective whole. I think maybe we are in the point now where you know there is that level of commonality across what we're all trying to do. As we said, there's particular dynamics in particular issues, um, and I think we've really drawn those out through the conversation today. But you know, certainly um, there is a level of commonality across vulnerability, and I think you know to come together um, as a coalition of charities and speak to financial institutions would be something that we'd really love to explore, actually, because um, I think it would help us, and I think we'd be able to do our job better. Would you welcome that, Martin? You, you know. 
know my thoughts on this, Chris, which is uh, always yes. Um, but I think also not just recognizing, but also sorry, where you can come together, but where you're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a, a kind of a thought earlier when we talk about do we do this, do we do that in terms of supporting people. I don't think there is a prescriptive list. And it's actually going to come back to giving those um, business units, those people on the front line, how we are designing, how we operate this stuff to pick the right things, be creative. So some of this stuff isn't necessarily uh, needing a lot of investment. This isn't about needing new computer systems. This is using the existing tools we have. So blocking accounts. We've been able to do that for years. If it's right or wrong in this scenario, make that decision and give that that colleague that authority. But that's across the, the breadth. So, so Annie, Annie we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the uh, podcast now. You, you've heard a lot uh, today about what could be done by the financial services sector to help people living through or carrying on from kind of a situation of economic abuse. But what one thing, or even two things, let's let you have two things oh, gosh. that you could do to really bring about change. What would you really want to see happen? I'd love to see that um, before lending any money to one person based on a joint income that they were absolutely sure that, that there wasn't anything else going on because and look at who is paying for everything within the relationship and who is going to be paying this debt. For me, I think the, the biggest thing was all the debt that I was left in because that long after I'd left them 15 years ago now this was ongoing until only a couple of years ago having to pay this back and I want to get across how much that meant to my life after I left him so it meant that no family holidays it meant because obviously he wasn't paying me anything either in maintenance um, the, the house isn't as nice as it could be with sort of second hand furniture all throughout and everything and it, it just stopped me and the kids doing stuff that we could have done had I not been paying this huge debt back for all those years I think just think about it from that point of view really so Nicola we, we have a voluntary code of practice uh, is this enough is legislation needed is it on the books what responsibilities or safeguards need to be put into place I think from slightly economic abuses perspective we're always going to be challenging um, people to do better and to do more um, because we have those daily conversations with victim survivors and we think they deserve that. So we think it's fantastic we're having these conversations, we've got an amazing um, springboard you could say uh, to spring off of hopefully um, but I suppose we're always looking to what we can do next so something that we're really um, excited about exploring in more detail is potentially going back to the debt issue, um, you know, perhaps adopting some of the practice in Australia where um, their guidelines around this issue in terms of the um, Australian banking sector is to consider sometimes, um, you know, halving a joint debt and only pursuing, um, you know, one party for that and, you know, ultimately also in, you know, pursuing the other person because I think what we're missing a lot of the time is that accountability on the abuser and I think that's come across so clearly in terms of what Annie just said you know 15 years down the line she and her kids were still struggling um, and my understanding is he's been leading a very nice life in this time very nice, yeah. so there's been no accountability um, he's not been made to consider his actions um, most likely he's gone on and done it again because we know this is what abusers do um, and we've really got to start thinking about holding abusers accountable in terms of our responses and that's hugely important to us mm-hmm. Karen and Martin, um, when we return in a year's time to look at the progress on the uh, code of practice, um, or even two years, let's be generous maybe, it's kind of um, what what we likely to see, what change should we have seen by that point? 
for me as a debt advisor, I'd like to see you know money advice, the money advice sector working better and, and with the financial code of practice. We hope that the economic abuse evidence form is out there and being used and will help that move the code of practice forward. Um, I'd like to see you know frontline workers trained, have an understanding. So your situation for fifty years, fifteen years down, down the line, you know you've had a, there was a different outcome for someone. They shouldn't be paying off those debts fifteen years down the line. There needs to be a different outcome so someone someone can move forward with their lives much easier. And I think it's one of the unique things of economic abuse. And I think if you ask Nicola as well, she'll, she'll testify that not only do you suffer from economic abuse while you're in the relationship, it's affected the economic abuse that you're trying to recover from. Mm -hmm from the economic abuse but also the the financial effects that has as well later on because you're recovering from all of it along the pathway so it's it's got a very long-standing effect and i think we need to recognize that and i would hope that going forward someone could access a level of money advice that would prevent that happening and just to say carrying on from karen is that there are two things that create what we call economic safety that's delinking from the perpetrator which we've talked about but also maximizing access to economic resources and when survivors are having to pay back lots of money they don't have maximum access to economic resources that can lead to payday loans um, and then other dangers which come up the back of that so things like payday um, lenders, physical threats, um, we've spoken to a lot of victims, survivors who sometimes say they entered into another relationship earlier than they wanted to just because they were struggling economically. That's not to say that it would be abused, but the fact is that they are vulnerable to abuse, so that's another reason why we need to be dealing with this. Martin, did you want to come in? Yeah, I'd, sorry, if we come back in two years' time, um, I'd like to see that we as an industry have taken the code of practice and are implementing it and embedding it. So I think the other thing is here about embedding this, this is not a one and done, it's going to be an ongoing conversation. Um, I would like to be able to see more people feeling comfortable to disclose, and then when we are disclosed to as an industry, we respond, we respond appropriately. Um, we develop more tools as we understand more. I think the more complex cases we get to unpick and de-link, they don't become complex anymore, they become things that we should be able to just tackle and move on to the next one, move on to the next one. We are, we are certainly in a position where we see exceptional, mm -hmm. because they're not often and they are complex I'd love to get to a point where that is just we're able to deal with it swallow it move on um, and actually we don't need to necessarily think about policy um, we're, we're talking about actually this is just how we need to de-link um, there's another point that I think this is just a, a more broader point for society um, is around joint finances the treatment of joint debts the, the, the actually how you join up relationships financially um, that is probably again a much more of a long burner and not attached to the, the financial abuse code of practice, but just generally how we view relationship finance. Thank you. We've reached the end, sadly, but I think this is an issue that we will certainly return to in the, in the future, given all the interest and also ongoing progress that appears to be kind of a, uh, surrounding it. If you've been affected by or interested in any of the issues that we covered in this podcast, then please visit uh, moneyadvicetrust.org podcast for more information. But in the meantime, uh, just to say thank you to the panel for the time and their expertise, and thank you also for listening. Mm -hmm.